You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Let me just say up front, put my cards on the table, this is what I want to explore with you. Your life, in particular in 2019, and the Bible. Your life and the Bible. I want you to think about that today. I want you to think about it in regard to the next year of your life. Your life and the Scriptures and, and, and the sacred Word of God. When you think about the Bible, it is God-breathed. In other words, it's God's words to us. Can you, is that not amazing? Like, the living God has, has recorded his words to put in a book so that we can read it and God can speak to us. I love how the old uh, Puritan Thomas Watson said it. Think in every line you read that God is speaking to you, for in truth he is. That's amazing. The living God would speak to us every time we open the Bible and we read it. The Bible's made of 66 books, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And I think it's helpful to think about those 66 books as a library of books arranged by genre. So they're not arranged by time chronologically, they're arranged by genre. So they're grouped by those sort of genres that you find in the Bible. Roughly 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It predicts and points to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Roughly 25% of the, the Bible is the New Testament, and that's the presentation of what was predicted in the Old Testament. It's the presentation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the New Testament and Old Testament are connected in some really deep and, and intimate ways. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament directly over 300 times, and it alludes to the Old Testament over 4,000 times. So you can just see the sort of deep interconnectedness between the Old and New Testaments. And I think this is a helpful thing to know about your Bible. When, when we read a modern translation today, there are chapter and verse divisions in it. And those are not inspired by God. They were put there by people in an effort to be helpful to you so that you can open up the Bible and find places in it quickly. So in the 1200s, uh, the 1200s, the 1189 chapter divisions were added to the Bible. In the 1500s, uh, the uh, 13 or 30, I'm sorry, 31,000, over 31,000 verse divisions were added to the Bible. Just, just to be helpful to you, to, to kind of get your bearings on where you are when you open up the Bible. Uh, but they're not inspired. And so just like in our text this morning, I actually think 1 Peter 1 should end at the end of chapter 2, verse 3. I think that would be a better, clear sort of place to end, but that's not where they ended. So they're not inspired. They're just there to be helpful for you. But when you take the Bible as a whole, it really is an amazing thing to consider that God arranged the Bible. He created the Bible over a course of 1,500 years. There's three languages that represent the Bible. And, and that Bible was, was made by God inspiring 40 human authors. Isn't that amazing? 1,500 years, three languages, 40 human authors. Uh, when you think back over the history of this world, it's the, the best-selling book that's ever been. I mean, it really is an amazing, it's an amazing book. And here's my angst this morning. Here's the angst. I think the Bible is admired by many but personally enjoyed by way too few. It's admired by a lot, but just personally. Like, I'm going to take the Bible, and I'm going to enjoy the Jesus that I find in the Scriptures. I think that just happens by far too many of us. I think we are prone to hold up the Bible and say things like, 
this is God's word to us, while all the while it just hasn't become God's word in us. And, and this is what I want to chat with you about. I just want to have a morning where I can encourage you toward the scriptures, that the posture of our church would just lean toward the Bible, toward reading the scriptures, enjoying the scriptures, devouring the scriptures. And I want to do this by considering seven verses uh, there toward the end of 1 Peter chapter 1. Seven verses. And in these seven verses, starting in chapter 1, verse 22, there are two commands. So those two commands frame the two major themes of this passage. And the first command, uh, you find it uh, there in chapter 1, it's to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the first one, Christian love. I would love to spend time on that one, but we just can't do it this morning. We've done that in multiple other mornings, um, and we need more of that in the world, in the church, in our church, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Um, but it's not going to be the focus of this morning. That's theme one. We're going to focus on theme two. It's the second command in these seven verses. And the second command is an interesting command. The, the second command, God is commanding us to crave something. He, he is saying to the church, I want you to crave the, the scriptures. He, he's looking at us and saying, I want you to crave the, the, the Bible. He's commanding a craving. He's saying, we church are to, are, are to crave uh, the, 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 the Bible, the, the scriptures. Uh, look at it in verse, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's the command. Long for it. He's commanding a craving. Long for the, the Bible. Now, isn't that interesting? That The passage is not, is not dealing with a deed. It's not commanding a deed. It's commanding a desire. God's commanding a craving to, to feel about something like he would want you to feel about it. In particular, he's commanding us to feel about the scriptures like the psalmist does in Psalm 119. Listen to him describe how he feels about the Bible, how he feels about the scriptures. The psalmist in Psalm 119 delights in the scripture. This is verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. In verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I mean, that's amazing. He's saying, if I did not delight in your words when I suffered, I would have just died right there on the spot. This is how important delighting in the scriptures are, how craving the scriptures are. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning, in the house of my, my exile. Right? This, is, this is the sort of delight that the psalmist has when he thinks of the Bible. And this is the same delight that Peter is commanding. He's saying, I want you to crave the Bible like that to delight yourself in it. Like this. Listen to how the psalmist loves the Bible. In verse 48 of Psalm 119, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Have you ever thought about the Bible? And then this thought comes behind it. I love that book. Man, I love it. This is what Peter is commanding. When we think about the scriptures, that we would feel like that about, like, man, I love that, but I delight in it. When I think of the Bible, I just, something deep in me smiles because I love that book. 
I, I, I delighted, I love, listen to the craving the psalmist has for the Bible. Verse 20 of Psalm 119. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Like, I wake up and I'm thinking about the scriptures. I, I go to lunch, I'm thinking about the scriptures. I go to bed, I'm thinking about the scriptures. Just at all times, I am consumed with longings for your rules. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He just, he just craves it. He just is thinking about it all the time. When he thinks of what is sweetest in his life, he thinks of the scriptures. And listen to him describe the worth of the, of the word. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119, 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. The psalmist is saying, if you piled a boatload of gold right there and you put the Bible right there and I have to choose, which one am I going to live my life with? He's saying, I am choosing the Bible every time. And Peter is saying, this is how I want you to feel about the Bible. When you think about the Bible, I want you to long for it, to, to crave it, to delight in it, to, to know its worth like that. This is what Peter's after. You know, Peter uses this whole baby milk metaphor to illustrate. I mean, it's, it's just the simple impulse. Like a, just like a newborn baby comes out of the womb craving and instinctively moving toward nourishment. Right? The milk. He's saying that, that a newborn, a reborn, a, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus just has this instinctive craving for God's word. Saying, I want you to have that, that impulse in you to, to, to crave it like that, to long for it like a newborn baby would milk. Now, why is this craving a command? Why would God come in 1 Peter 1 and say, I want you to long for it? I want, I want you to crave the, the scriptures. The simplest thing maybe we could say about that is that God commands us to crave the scriptures because God knows what's good for us. He knows that if we're craving other things, it will destroy us and ruin us. But if we're craving the right thing, namely the, the word of God, that will actually nourish us and strengthen us and, and build us and make us more mature. So, so he knows what's good for us. But, but I love about, what I love about this particular passage is it shows us why it's good for us. And I just want to run through this passage and show you six characteristics as to why it is good for us to crave the scriptures. Six characteristics of the word of God that make the word worth our craving. Six characteristics. Like, Why would God say the word is good for us to crave? Here's six characteristics. Number one, the Bible is alive. The Bible is alive. Look at verse 23 and watch how, or, or look at how it describes the Bible. Since you have been born again, so that's what's happened, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, and listen, look at this descriptive word, the living and abiding word of God. When Peter thinks about the Bible, when he thinks about the scriptures, when he thinks about the word of God, he thinks of it like this, the word of God is not a dead thing. It is a living thing. This is a living book. It's alive. The Bible is alive. Now, the book of Hebrews says something very similar. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the author of Hebrews says it like this. 
For the word of God is living and active. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways, active is a good explanation of what it means for the Bible to be alive. It, it, to say that the Bible is alive is to say that it is active. In other words, that it does things to us. That The Bible affects us. It affects our minds. It affects our hearts. It affects our lives. You know, Psalm 119 is a great example of this. In Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist is talking about the Word of God, and, and he's telling us things that the Word of God does to us. And here are some of the things that it does. The, the Word of God makes our heart rejoice. It rejoices the heart. It makes wise the simple. It revives the soul. It, in other words, the, the, the Word does things. It, it's a living thing. It's an active thing. When you read it, it does things to us. And, and he, the author of Hebrews goes on. It, it's living and active, and then he goes on. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What, what sort of activity does the Word of God do in us? Well, it's like a sword that pierces down into the depths of our soul. That, that's an activity of the Word. He goes on in verse 13 of Hebrews 4, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's another thing that the active word of God does. It's not just like a sword that pierces down, cuts down to our souls. It's also, um, it, it's active like a mirror. In other words, we hold the word of God in front of us and it exposes our heart. It exposes who we are and who we're not. Do you ever wonder, like, am I, am I a legit disciple of Jesus? Like, has God really rescued me and, and, and really made me new? Has he really done, has he really done that? Unlike, any, unlike anything else, that the Spirit of God uses the Scriptures to show us our true selves. To, to show us that we're both a sinner and a saint. To show us the best of us and the worst of us. See, in, in this way, the Bible is alive. It affects us. It does things to us. It's not an outdated book, good for the people of a few generations ago. It's relevant to you. Like when you open up the Bible, the Spirit of God is going to hold it in front of you and like a sword cut into you and like a mirror show you you. It, it, it's alive. It's living and active. It's relevant for you. The, the Bible is alive. Secondly, the Bible gives life. The Bible is not just alive. It also gives life. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 23 again. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again. So you, you've been made alive. Like you were dead, but now you're alive in, in Jesus. Now, how did that happen? Not of imperishable seed, but of, or not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Here's how it happened. Through the living and abiding word of God. The Bible is not only alive, but this living word bestows life. The scriptures make us alive. It becomes the, the, one of the primary means of the spirit bringing life into our souls. This is why Paul in, in Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says, faith comes by hearing, but not just any sort of hearing or hearing of anything. It's No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It, it's through hearing the word. It's, it's through the word that we are given life. That, like, that same word that begets you is that same word that continues breathing life into you. It's not just alive, but it gives life. This is Psalm 19 again. The word, here's one of the functions of it. It revives the soul. 
I doubt anyone came in this morning thinking this. You know what? Here's my problem in life. I, am, I just have too much spiritual vibrancy. I'm just too alive in Jesus. I mean, I, I just, I'm going to have to tone this thing down just a little bit. I doubt any of us came in thinking that, right? And if all of us are in the position of like, we are praying for God to bring more spiritual vibrancy, this is telling us where to go. We go to the scriptures where the Spirit of God meets us to bring that sort of revival of soul. One of my favorite pastors says it like this. He says, the reason I read the Bible. Now, why do you think about this? The last time you opened up the Bible, why did you read it? Here's his reason. The reason I read the Bible is because I am stone cold dead without Christ and his word. That's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible because I am stone cold dead without Christ and his word. Um, in conversation, this one will oftentimes come up of a person saying, of me saying, I am languishing. Or, or it'll be them saying, I, you know, I am languishing. I'm just, I'm lacking spiritual vibrancy. I mean, I, I feel like I'm in a desert. I'm just doubting everything. I'm doubting God. I'm doubting the existence of God. I am just totally out in the middle of nowhere right now, languishing and withering. And at some point in that conversation, I'll ask this question. How often are you opening up the Bible and reading it? And not every time. This isn't the, the reason every time, but the overwhelming majority of times, here will be their response. It's been a long time since I've done that. And is it any wonder? Like if, if we forego one of God's main gifts of grace to bring revival to our soul, renewal to our soul, if we stiff arm that means of grace, is it any wonder that we find ourselves languishing and wilting and withering in our spiritual vibrancy? And if we're in a place of saying, God, I want more spiritual vibrancy, which is all of us. If we're in that place, then the Bible is showing us this is where we go. The Bible is alive, and the Bible gives life. It bestows life through the power of the Spirit. So the Bible is alive, number one. Number two, the, the, the Bible gives life. Here's number three. The Bible endures. Read with me, 1 Peter 1, 23-25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable of imperishable, that, that's a way it describes the Bible, of imperishable seed. Through the living and, listen to this descriptive word, abiding word of God. And then he goes on in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The Bible endures. Now look at the words that it uses to describe the Bible. Imperishable, abiding, it remains forever. And beside that sort of enduring quality of, of the scriptures, Peter sets in contrast to that, or in comparison to that, human beings, all, all flesh. In other words, say like everything living. Paul says, here's the Bible. It remains, it abides, it's imperishable. And here is every living thing. And every living thing, here's the illustration. It's like a flower of the field, right? It, it's, like, it's like this grass, like this flower that blooms brightly, but then fades quickly. That, that is like all flesh over there. That, that's what it does. But, but here's the Bible that abides. It's imperishable. It remains. Peter is saying that just think of any nation, any culture, any people. Every nation will fall. Every culture will fall. Every people will fall. But the word of God stands forever. It remains forever. This is, Paul, this is Peter's point. 
It is abiding. It remains forever. And Peter is talking to people. He's writing to people who are living under Roman rule. And he is saying to them, there there will be a day when Rome is in ruins. And in that day when Rome is in ruins, the Bible will remain. It will remain. He's saying there's a day that everyone who mocks and maligns the word, there's a day where every one of those people will fall into ruin, but the word of God will remain. You know, the Bible has an interest, it's really an unbelievable history. It's the most loved and hated book that there has ever been. It has survived incredible opposition, both from the culture at large and, sadly to say, even from the church. It just survived incredible opposition. Listen to one author describe it. He says, body racks, tongue pinchers, thumb screws, whipping trees have been used to encourage Christians to put down their Bibles. Some have been burned, others boiled, many beheaded, and innumerable drawn and quartered because they would not put down the Bible. By 300 AD, an official degree, decree by Rome outlawed the Bible and any Christian caught with one would be executed. That is the sort of opposition that the Bible has faced. But the Roman Empire soon found itself in ruins and the word of God remained. When you think about uh, the Bible, if you've got a Bible in your hand, just take a look at it. If you've got a phone that has turned into a Bible in your hand, just take a look at the Bible there for a minute. You are looking at that Bible, and you are doing so at incredible human cost. That has been such a costly book to put into your hands just like it is. John Wycliffe, the Bible translator, was condemned as a heretic for translating the Bible. His body was eventually dug up, burned, and his ashes thrown into a river just to kind of dishonor and defile him. As a Bible translator. William Tyndale, the Bible translator, he was strangled and burned alive for translating the Bible into kind of the common vernacular of the English people. Um, year, uh, soon thereafter, his assistant, John Rogers, picked up his work and finished it, and he too, I mean, just listen, he was burned at the stake to translate the Bible in a way where you could get it. And we just, we just receive all these incredible translations out that we just kind of take for granted. We need to know that came to us at great cost. One of my favorite stories is, is of Voltaire. Um, when he was alive, this was back in the 1700s, he said that the Bible in 100 years from now would cease to be read and would go away. A few years later, he died. And a few years after that, a Bible society purchased his house, used his own printing presses to print the Bible and to send it all over the world. It's just the word of God remains. And it's amazing. It's an incredible history. It, it just, it's, it, it's doing what Peter said it would do. All flesh is going to pass away like grass. It's going to bloom brightly and then fade quickly. But the word of God remains forever. The Bible endures. Number four, the Bible is true. The Bible is true. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure, you might underline that word pure, pure spiritual milk, and by it, or that by it, you may grow up into salvation. That word pure. It's the same word used in the previous verse, in in chapter 2, verse 1, for the word deceit. That word pure has the same Greek root word as that word deceit in in chapter 2, verse 1. But in chapter 2, verse 2, there is an alpha in front of it, which essentially negates the meaning and kind of makes it the opposite. 
So where it's deceit without the alpha, with the alpha, it's the opposite. It's pure or it's trustworthy. It's truthful. It's Psalm 119, 160. It's what it says about it. The sum of your word is truth. In other words, Peter is saying, when he uses that word pure, Peter is saying, you can bank your life on this book. You can bank your life on it, your death on it, your future on it, your eternity on it. You can, you can bank on it. The Bible throughout its pages makes hundreds and hundreds of promises to the followers of Jesus. And without those promises, it is impossible to live the Christian life. And Peter is saying in that word, pure, he is saying that every one of those promises are trustworthy and true. There will be a day where God makes good on every single one of those promises. So plant your life on the Bible. It is steady. It is stable. It is the very words of God. It's, it's pure, Peter says. Here's the fifth thing we learn about the Bible. Is that the Bible nourishes. The Bible nourishes. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it, listen to this last phrase, you may grow up into salvation. How, how are you going to grow up? That by it, the, the word, that this pure spiritual milk, you're going to grow up into salvation. So let's just take this into a few parts. Look at that last phrase there. You may grow up into salvation. Peter is implying that we need to grow. Like, like part of what it means to be a Christian is that we are, we are on the journey of growing up into maturity, that we are growing to look more and more like Jesus. And, and the Bible, in many places, talks about this. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, looked at the church in Corinth, and he says, you need to be growing up! You're still babies! You need to be, you need to be growing! He says, you should be eating meat, meat but you're still on the milk, so, so grow! This is, this is his point there. You should be growing up. Now think about the, the whole just growing up thing. Why, why is that important? Um, we have three biological kids in our, in our home. And uh, when we had each of those kids, Laura did the whole, uh, how do I say it? She did the whole uh, body feeding thing. I just feel so much comfortable with that word. Body feeding, can we use that word? She did the body feeding thing. And, uh, and w when you think about a five-month-old, when you see a five-month-old body feeding, no, no one says to the five-month-old doing that, are you serious? You gotta stop that. That is not good. No one says that. Why? Because it's like natural. It's, it's like a good thing. Like God designed it to work that way. When you come out of the womb, you, you need to do that. That's a, a good thing. But if you look at a 20-year-old and you've got a 20-year-old body feeder, we got a problem, don't we? I'm just saying, I'm calling the cops and somebody's going to jail right now. That is, that is not normal, right? And in the same way, that this metaphor is, is helping us see that we should be growing up. We should be progressing. We should be becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Spirit. Like when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, this text reminds us that we are born again. In other words, we start as a newborn baby. That's how we start in the Christian life. And it's great to start there. That's the only place we can't start. We're, we're born again. We're a baby. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to be a 20-year-old body feeder, right? That's not right. It's not good. It's not natural. It, it, it's not where we should be. We're to, we're to grow up. We're to become more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Spirit. Right? At, 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 when you're thinking about what does it mean to be more like Jesus in all of life, one of, I think this is a helpful discipline for, for any follower of Jesus to have, is periodically to read through the Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
They present for us the life of Jesus. To read through the Gospels and to ask yourself, what is Jesus like? What, what is he like? And this is where you find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to tell us what Jesus is like. And if we're going to grow up into Jesus, we're going to become like him in all of life. We, we actually have to know what he's like so we can become like that. And, and here's how one author, Tim Keller, how he describes Jesus in the Gospels. He's tenderness without any weakness. He's strength without the slightest hint of harshness. He's perfect humility with no lack of confidence. He's unbending in his convictions, but is completely approachable. He's absolute in his power, but without any insensitivity to those without the power. He's passionate without any prejudice. He has total integrity without any rigidity. He's never unthinking, never a false word. This is, this is Jesus, and we're to become more like that Jesus in all of life. Now, how are we to become more like that Jesus in all of life? How does that happen? It, it's the Spirit of God using the Word of God in our life. That, that's how it happens. Now, there is more to be said about Christian growth and how we change as a Christian. Like, we need community to change. I mean, there's more to say about change. But, but there's not less to say about change. If we want to grow and mature as a Christian, it is never apart from the Word. It's always in the Word and through the Word. The Bible gives us the needed nutrients to grow up out of spiritual infancy into maturity as a follower of Jesus. It's always in the, in the Word. That, that's where the nutrients are. Like this metaphor that Paul is using in 1 Peter, this metaphor of infant and milk, it's at some, it, it, there's other moments in the Bible where that metaphor is used to say grow up. Now, Peter is wanting us to grow up. He says that. We're to grow up in our salvation. But that's not the point of the metaphor here. The point of the metaphor is not um, you should grow up. It, it's telling us how we grow up. The, the point of the metaphor is to say just like an infant needs milk, you as a Christian need milk to grow up. And the milk, the nutrients you need is found in the Word. It's like in the Bible is where we, we find like th those things that immunity from sin, that, that help us resist the flesh, help us re resist the remaining sin in us. It, it gives us strength to, to, to grow and to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. All of those nutrients are found in the Bible. So, so Peter is saying, get in the word. This is, this is your nourishment. This is the nutrients that you need. They're found there. This is the reason Jesus says in Matthew 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see the Bible as that necessary in your life? Like more necessary than your next meal that you're going to eat physically. For your spiritual life, you need the Word of God. It is that necessary. It, it is that important in your life with God. The Bible nourishes. And here's the sixth thing we see about the Bible. Is that the Bible gives us Jesus to enjoy. Look at verses 2 and 3 of, of 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There are many ways to experientially taste, to, to personally enjoy Jesus, to know that the Lord is good. There's, there's many ways to do that. But there are no ways that are better than opening up the Bible and reading it. There are many ways to do it. But there is no way better than the, the Bible to, to experience 
in a personal and tangible way the enjoyment of Jesus. And by the way, this is what the Bible was written for, is to help you enjoy Jesus. It's written for your joy. This is how Jesus says it in John uh, chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says, these things I've written to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why do we have the Bible? It's because God is saying to us, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may, uh, that your joy may be full. It is a joy-producing book. Now, now, why is it a joy-producing book? The Bible is a joy-producing book because it is a Jesus-presenting book. It, it presents for us Jesus to be enjoyed. This is, this is the reason we read the Bible. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. What, what is the point of the Bible? Here's what she says. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And I love the subtitle of her book. It's a Jesus Storybook Bible, and then here's the subtitle. Every story whispers his name, whispers the name of Jesus. This is why verse 25 says that the word, it is the good news. The word is the, the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Redemption, the rescue of Jesus, is the thread that holds all 66 books together and makes the Bible a Christian book. It's the fact that it points to Jesus, what he has done for us, not just what we're to do, but what he has done to rescue us and to renew us. That's, that's what the Bible is about. It's a joy-producing book because it's a Jesus-presenting book. Now, let me just make one point of clarification. The scriptures are a means, not an end. And this is where people get into a lot of trouble, or you can get into a lot of trouble with the Bible. The scriptures are, not, are a means, not an end. The, the Bible shows us that it is possible to love the Bible and still miss Jesus. This was the problem of the Pharisees in the New Testament. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus, looking at the Pharisees, says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. Like, you love the Bible and you're going after the Bible. You're devouring the Bible. But, but here's the problem. The Bible, he says, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you Pharisees who love the Bible and are coming to the Bible and searching the scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It is possible to love the scriptures, yet still miss Jesus. So the goal is not Bible knowledge. It's not to know more Bible trivia. The goal of reading the Bible is the enjoyment of Jesus. That the reason we open up the Bible is so that our souls can, can be satiated in Jesus, satisfied in Jesus, so, so that the hooks of temptation can be taken out of our lives, so that we can be reminded of what matters most, how we're going to make our life count. That's the reason we're reading the Bible. It's, an, it's a means, not an end to itself. Now, here's where I want to finish today. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about this command. Peter is saying, I'm commanding you to crave the Scriptures. He's commanding a longing. He's commanding us to crave. The problem that, that when I first read it that I feel is, but I can't make myself crave something, right? You can't make yourself crave something. I can't make myself crave something. So, so only God can do that. But the practical application of that command, like how would we put that into play? The practical application of that command means that we do what we can, and what we can do is consume the word, and then we trust God to do what we can't, create the craving for the word. So we do what we can, trust God to do what we can't. 
So the question then becomes, what can we do? And we can consume the word. So I want to finish by just giving you some practical ways that you can consume the Bible, devour the Bible, enjoy Jesus in the scriptures. I'm going to give you some practical ways. And I'm going to use an illustration that the navigators have used for years. And it's just an illustration with a hand. So here's, here's the five ways you can consume the scriptures. If you think of it as a hand, here are the five ways. Number one, we can hear it. We, we can hear it. That's the pinky. We, we can hear it. Every follower of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus needs to consistently sit under good, gospel-soaked, Jesus-pointing preaching. Every follower of Jesus needs that. It is a vital component of your life with God to be with God's people when God's word is preached so that the spirit of God can impress upon you in the moment the things he would want. That is a vital discipline. Like if you need a reason to get up every Sunday and to get to church, to get your family to church, if you need a reason every Sunday morning to do that, here it is. It is vital. It is such an important part of our life with God to sit under God's pre or good preaching with, with God's people. There's just no replacing that. We need to hear the word. Hear the word. Here's the second one. Here's the second one. Hear it and then read it. That's the ring finger. Read it. There is no substitute for opening up your Bible and reading the scriptures. Reading the Bible is how we take in the breadth of scripture. Like Genesis to Revelation, we take in the whole of the Bible. And we need the whole Bible to make a whole Christian, right? So it's how we take in the whole of the Bible. When you do this over a period of time, when you just read through the Bible uh, consistently, year by year, you're just reading through big chunks of the Bible, over time, you begin to see that Genesis through Revelation, it, it's all interconnected and related. You begin to see these things. You, you begin to come to a text like ours in 1 Peter and see this idea of being born again, and then you think, well, there's a chapter in Ezekiel, verse, uh, chapter 37, where, where dead bones all of a sudden come to life, and you begin to think that that's probably an Old Testament foreshadowing of, of what God is going to do to us in Jesus, how he's going to remake us and renew us, and, and we're going to be born again in him. You begin to tie things like that together, but that happens through reading the breadth of the scriptures, and, and we need to read the breadth of the scriptures. And just as an encouragement to you, last week we talked about these uh, community Bible reading journals. They're out in, at the resource table. They've got our Bible reading plan in it. That's a good way to read the scriptures, is just to get on a normal Bible reading plan. The Bible reading plan in here that we as a church are on takes you through the New Testament every year, and it divides the, three uh, the New Old Testament up into three sections so that every three years you read through the Old Testament. It just gets you through the Bible. And I just want to recommend that to you. If you don't have a Bible reading plan for 2019, grab this journal out at the resource table. It's got our Bible reading plan in it. If you just want the Bible reading plan, then uh, you can go online to stonegate.church, look under our resources. You'll find our Bible reading plan there that you can uh, download and print off. But that's a good way to read the Bible is to get on a Bible reading plan. So we hear it, we read it, then we study it. If reading is taking in the breadth of Scripture, studying takes in the depth of the Scriptures. I, when you read five chapters of the Bible or three chapters of the Bible, you're probably not going to ask a lot of questions over any one or two verses. But when you study the Bible, you are taking in less of the Bible and you're asking dozens and dozens of questions about that verse. It's a way for you to chew on the Bible, for you to ponder the Bible, for you to, to, to ask good questions about the Bible. That, that's studying the scriptures. And one of the things that we have found is that most Christians have never developed the skill of studying the scriptures. 
So we need that podcast and we need that thing and we need this thing. We need these nine books. We need all that to be able to study the Bible. It's like, no, as a Christian, we need to be able to open up the Bible and to develop the skills to study the Bible to query the Bible, to ask good questions of the Bible. And in an effort to kind of train and equip toward that, we do Bible study method kind of equipping classes, just to equip this church family to be able to open up the Bible and to study it. Our next one is going to start at the end of January. You can go to stonegate.church, upcoming event, and like you can register today for that class. That would be such a good application of this. I have to jump into a class like that to sharpen that skill of being able to study the Bible. And if you've done it in the past, like every year or two, it'd probably be really great to jump into that, just to refresh those skills, to sharpen those skills. So we, so we hear the Bible, we read the Bible, we study the Bible. Number four, this is the pointer finger, we memorize the scriptures. Memorize it. Memorizing it is taking small sections of the scriptures and doing what Psalm 119.11 says, we're hiding it in our hearts so that we won't sin against God. You know, in all of our lives, there's going to be moments where we so desperately need God to speak to us, and your podcast isn't going to be there, your pastor's not going to be there, your home group leader's not going to be there. It's going to be you and God. And in that moment, do you know what memorized scripture becomes? It becomes the vocabulary for the Spirit of God to speak to you. Like when you so desperately need it, that that memorized scripture that you've hidden in your soul is going to be the vocabulary that the Spirit of God uses to comfort you, to reassure you, to help you. That, that's memorizing it. We, we hear it, we read it, we study it, we memorize it. And fifth, the, this is the thumb, the most important piece. This is how we actually grab onto the word. We meditate on it. And this is the key to anything in the Bible. It's meditating on it or, or thinking on it. It's, it's taking what we've heard or what we've read or what we've studied, what we've memorized, and it's, it's just saturating our souls in it, marinating in it. I, take this morning as an example. I don't care if John the Baptist was here preaching to you. If you don't take time to meditate on what you've heard, it's useless. Like you hearing the Bible, you reading it, you studying, you memorizing, it's going to be like a vapor that appears and it's gone before your eyes. But when you meditate upon the word, it, it pulls down the word from something up there to something down in here. That, that's, how it, that's how the Bible gets down into us, into our soul, into our heart, into our life, into our emotions, is when we, when we do the hard work of thinking it through, of, of meditating on it, of marinating in it, of pausing to, to ponder, well, what is that? Why is that? What should that, what should that do to my soul? That, that's meditating upon the scriptures. It's Jeremiah 15, 16, when, when Jeremiah says, I, I, I found your words and, and I ate them. Th that is meditation. That, that is taking the Bible and chewing it and ingesting it so that those words out there become these words deep down in here. And I want to finish just by giving you this. These words from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite guys in church history, an old Baptist preacher, he said it this way. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words. 
but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I quote John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Behind the Bible, the best-selling book in in church history. He said, "I, I quote to you John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of John Bunyan, read anything of his, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read the Bible till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And through his writing, though his writings are charmfully full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. And he ends by saying, brothers and sisters, I commend his example to you. Can we pray together? I want to give you just a moment before the Lord to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And This is the part of our service where you get to respond to God. We get to to ponder, to meditate, to think upon his word. And we get to respond in the ways it would be appropriate. We get to think about, meditate upon, ponder that God calls us to command a craving. He, He calls us to to long for pure spiritual milk, to long for the scriptures. What would obedience look like in that? What would, what would repentance this morning look like? What would be the, the one step God would want you to take this morning? For, for some this morning, this text shows us the step. The first thing that has to happen in our life with God is we've got to be reborn. And for some of you, the Spirit of God is doing that this morning. He's he's making you a new creation. He's reforming the inside of you. And the first thing that you do as a new creation is to cry out in faith to God. It's that moment where we push our life over the line. We, We take that decisive step toward God where we hold up our life and say, God, here I am. I am depending on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Rescue me. I'm depending on his life credited to my account, his death taking away my sin. God, here I am. Save me. And if that's you this morning, we've got tables set up at the back of the room, prayer tables. And if that's you, you can meet some of our our pastors, staff, part of our prayer team back at these tables, and they would love to take that first step with you this morning. So, Father, would you help us today? 
God, would you help us respond rightly? God, would you help us take you, the, the beautiful God that we find in the scriptures, God, would you, would you take our hearts and would you make our hearts just in awe of you, this God that is presented to us here. And God, I pray now we could sing to that God. We, we could sing to you. That those who have tasted your goodness, we could sing of your goodness. So, oh God, would you help us do that now? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.